This morning, scripture reading comes from selected texts from the Acts of the Apostles, chapters 6 and 7. Acts 6, 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Greek-speaking Jews among them complained against the Hebrew-speaking Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and six more. So the word of God spread. From Acts chapter 7, 54 to 60. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious at Stephen. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The word of the Lord. Sometimes we don't take uh, the time to ponder that. Where did you see Jesus this week in your life? Take a moment. Bow your heads and thank God for his presence in your life. Where did you see him? In an interaction, in a need met, in a tear that was wiped away, in a laugh with a grandchild. I had that. Lord, we thank you. What a wonderful name the name of Jesus is. We lift him high. We pray this morning that he will increase and that we will decrease. That's a counterintuitive prayer in this season of our humanity, Lord. But we want your son in our life to increase. That's the desire of our hearts. We're not good at that, Lord. We fall down on that. But that's what we want. Because when we have experienced you, when we've seen you in our lives, we know that's life at its very best. That's living the good life. We see Jesus at every turn. We thank you that he's not far, that he's near, that he's right here with us in this place. And But he doesn't stay in this place. He goes home with us. He goes to work with us. He goes on Zoom calls with us. Thank you in the name of your great son, Jesus. We pray in the Lord's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, Grace City. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for joining us online. We're so thrilled to have you with us. I wish you were here. It's so good to be down together, face-to-face, eye-to-eye. 
I saw Jesus this week. One thing I was thinking about as we prayed, I saw Jesus this week, um, and I want to lift up uh, Crystal and Adrian and Ling and uh, others on that team who put together uh, the workshop on Thursday night for, for us. Uh, a bunch of you were on that call. If you, yeah, let's hear it for those folks. With Nikki Lerner, it was a moment to see and experience Jesus together, and it was all about the mission of this church, to reconcile people to God and to one another across all the lines that divide us. It was, a, it was a wonderful moment to see Jesus. So thank you, uh, team from the women's ministry that put that together for all of us. Hey, I, I've changed the message up just a little bit this morning as of yesterday, just in light of all that's happening around the world. Um, I want to first point out that because of our big investment in Nicaragua this week, um, with an election coming, uh, the Ortega family um, has closed down the press in Nicaragua, they arrested the owners and managing editors of La Prensa. And uh, when the press closes down in a country that pretends to be democratic, uh, that's kind of the final chapter, right, for, for what's going on in this season. So we're going to lift up Nicaragua. And also with all that's going on in Haiti and the needs there, and then particularly uh, because it's covered, so you know, like Nicaragua is not covered at all, but Afghanistan's getting a lot of coverage. and. Um, so I changed this up a little bit to reflect our reality in our world today, because I know all of us are living with so much anxiety about uh, not only world events, but the events in our own stories, our own lives, right? Now, during each of our many week-long trips to Nicaragua over the last 12 years, and Corey and I and Rick and many of you have been there many, many times, probably 10 times uh, for some of us, during each of the nights in Nicaragua, we held a nightly ritual uh, and we called it, I Saw Jesus Went. And all it was about was a fill-in-the-blank to capture the remarkable daily experiences of what Jesus was doing in this poorest of the poor developing country. And we would be witness to it every day. And it was a reminder every night as we sat around to look for Jesus. And that's something we often forget. Somebody say amen. We often forget. And the stories would, would, would range, but I remember the very first time hearing from my own son saying he saw Jesus when he saw the, the eight and nine-year-olds in a family taking the food that was being provided that day and feeding their three and four-year-old siblings first, just in case there wasn't enough. And sometimes there wasn't enough. And part of what you do as in our ministry in Nicaragua is every day, including this week, every day, kids who would not have a meal otherwise are getting fed because of your generosity from this church. And I'm so grateful for that. I saw Jesus win. Now, near the end of this morning's powerful story that Danielle read to us, and if, if you were following her reading at all, it went from this joyful appointment to this horrible, tragic ending in two chapters, Stephen's story. Near the end, uh, Danielle read this in Acts 7.55. Take a look on your screen at home. Stephen saw, Stephen saw Jesus. He was saying, I saw Jesus when Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God just as he was about to meet his death. And Stephen saw Jesus from a dangerous place. And we're going to get there as we see Acts 6 through 7 through our title today, The Chronicles of Stephen. The Chronicles of Stephen. One of the advantages, church, for looking for Jesus today is that we get to see what we ought to aspire to in Christ or perhaps more accurately, who we ought to reflect in our lives. Now, here's what I mean. All people, all of us, share a common origin. We learn about it in Genesis, the book of Genesis. 
All of us, look around the room, do it. Just swivel your heads, look around the room. Every one of us shares a common origin in the story of the creation of humanity in Adam. In Genesis, we learn that the triune God, that the Trinity created us in his image. Now, church, an image is a reflection. Um, it, it, in theology, we call it the imago Dei. Imago Dei. Say imago Dei for me. That's kind of, it's Latin, but, and it's kind of weird, but it's the imago Dei. It simply means the image of God. And it refers to the biblical truth that humans are created in God's image. This means, stay with me, this means probably what you think it means, but we don't take it seriously enough. This means that everybody, regardless of ethnicity, race, class, gender, has intrinsic value and worth in God. Human dignity is innate in creation design. Let me say that again. Human dignity is innate in creation design, and it reflects the very value and values of God. So the Imago Dei forms the theoretical and the theological foundation of all that is, for instance, what Grace City is about, particularly, particularly the, the work we're about in reconciliation to God and to one another. All persons, church, are created in the image of God, even those we don't like. Are you with me? Even those we, we, we don't respect. Can you handle it? Even those whom we actually fear, are you with me, are made in the image of God. And that image, that image is broken at the fall in Genesis. That image is broken for all humankind. It's broken for me. It's broken for those whom we enjoy. It's broken for those whom we honor. It's broken for those who are on our side in all the debates raging around the world. And it's broken in ourselves. Therefore, if we're going to achieve unity on this side of heaven, we must speak honestly. And we're going to see that in our story today. We must call violations of the Imago Dei exactly what they are. And here it is, Grace City, any form of racism, any form of elitism, discrimination, misogyny, oppression, any form is not only a social dysfunction, it is also a sin issue at its core. Are you with me? It, it misses the mark of God's creation design. That's what sin is. Dismissing any fellow image bearer as lesser than, somehow, put that in quotes, Dismissing any fellow image bearer as lesser than is a sin issue. And most often in Scripture, God begins the healing and the unifying when that sin is addressed, confessed, and redressed. And that's a sermon that we ought to preach right there. Addressed, confessed, and redressed. But I'll leave it there. So what do we look like in the mirror of our Creator as His image? What defines people made in the image of God Almighty? Of course, to be in the image of God is not to be God, right? We're not, we're not becoming gods. There are some philosophies that have, have said that. But here it is. To be in the image of God is to be free and capable to obey God. It gives us the capacity to obey God. Three dimensions define the image of God in us, and you'll notice that none of them speak of body or gender. We do not look like God, and God does not look like us. The image of God has nothing to do with physicality. As we understand what his image makes in us, you'll begin to realize this morning that it's more about our innate relational capabilities and less about innate characteristics or functions. Let me show you three dimensions of the Imago Dei. The first two, I simply only have time to, to sort of give you a definition. 
And we can come back and preach these as the year goes on, maybe as one-off sermons. So the first two, just a definition. But the final one, the third one this morning, I'm going to really expand upon through the story of Stephen that you heard read. And it is by far the most challenging part of the image of God for humanity. So I want to spend the bulk of my time on that through the lens of Stephen's story. But the first element of our Imago Day reflects this. And you'll see it on your screen at home. But the first one is this, God's spiritual image. God's spiritual image we are made in. Most often theologians call this God's natural image because God's nature is spiritual. Are you with me? God is spirit. But I want to say it maybe more clearly. It's God's spiritual image. Um, you may remember Jesus saying to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, you'll see it on your screen, God is spirit, Jesus said, and his worshipers must worship in what? In spirit and in truth. So we are made in God's spiritual image. We too are spiritual beings. We are invested with understanding and freedom of will. The philosopher Pierre de Chardin, de Chardin said it this way. Listen to this. I love this. We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. I love that. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. So these spiritual endowments in God's image, notably understanding, will, and freedom, are given to all humanity. They make us capable of entering into conscious relationship with God. When we speak our mission statement here at church, reconciling people to God, we understand that all human beings, everyone in this city, everyone around the world, all of us are capable of entering into a relationship with God. Now, after the fall, after sin entered the world, the spiritual image eroded such that these capacities uh, have been impaired. So our understanding, for instance, does not function properly. Our will does not function properly. We have lost our freedom, and we are now in bondage to sin. That's throughout the scriptures. But God intervenes through who? The name of Jesus, through Jesus. God intervenes, restoring our capacity, your capacity, all of our capacity for relationship with God. So we're made in the spiritual image of God, but secondly, our Imago Dei shows up in our reflection of God's political image. Are you ready for this? This is not Bob's words. This is theologian's words. Secondly, God's political image. Because be, being created in the image of God, secondly, means that we have responsibility as stewards and governors of creation. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 shows it. God created humankind in God's own image so that humans would have dominion over the rest of created order. Look at the verse in 128 of Genesis. God said, God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish and the birds and the sky and every living creature that moves over the ground. So church, we are to be governors of this lower world, having dominion over the fishes of the sea, over all the earth. This political image we reflect consists of God's endowment of humanity, of you and me with the faculties of leadership, the faculties of management and stewardship over all the earth and all it contains. And listen, though this uses the word dominion over creation, don't forget, before I leave this point, don't forget that because this is an aspect of the image of God, human dominion over creation is to reflect God's love. Not some sort of dominance, not some sort of misuse, like we own it, we can do whatever we want with it, it is to reflect God's love. In other words, we, ref we reflect God politically only insofar as God's benevolence is reflected in our stewardship of creation. So at our best, at our very best in God's political image, uh, we steward the way he stewards, the way he stewards us. How has God loved you, love his creation in the same way? 
with absolute love. And then invite all persons, all neighbors, all friends, all family to steward and inhabit the creation with that same kind of care. Most obviously in this decade and going forward in the years ahead, God's political image, uh, it's not the only thing, but probably most obviously, obviously God's political image is that which we must carry into the fray of the impending, uh, the, the existing climate crisis. How do we care for this planet as God's, in God's political image? So we're made in his spiritual image. We're made in his political image. But let's push into the third element of what it looks like to be made in God's image and see it by example through the story of Stephen, the Chronicles of Stephen. Because here we see, and this is the third point that we're going to spend time on, here we see that we are also made in God's moral image. God's moral image. Write that down. The moral image of God is the one that is most clearly not a situation, not a legal status, but rather a relationship marked by love. This is a dynamic relationship. John says it this way in the fourth chapter of his first letter, in verses 7 and 8. Beloved, he says, let us, listen how many times he says love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Six times he uses the word love, and it describes the moral image of God. There is an overabundance of love in these two sentences, I believe, because love is to be extreme in God's image, in God's moral image. In other words, the moral image is not about a legal status. It's not, it is about our capacity, renewed in Christ, to be extremists in love for others, as God has been an extremist in love for us. This is the moral image of God in which we've been designed. It's the foundation. It's the second part of our mission here at church, but it's who we were made to be. And when we deny it, when we push it away because of our own interests, our own passions, our own disagreements, we are pushing aside the very image of God. A friend asked me, well, let me back up for a minute um, as we get into the story of Stephen. A friend asked me why I have been employing science fiction titles for my sermons uh, in this series on the power of stories. And it's because as a child I loved sci-fi stories because sci-fi stories captured the, the biggest passions of life. Love, jealousy, ambition, and, and of course evil. Love and evil always play a part in science fiction stories. Love on the one hand and evil on the other. And I mention this because I don't want any of us to think that Stephen's story that we heard read and are getting into... I don't want any of us to think that Stephen's story is quite as remote from our own world, from our own experience, as you might think it is. Because on the other side of extreme love, God's moral image, extremists for hate have been around for a long time. Amen? And they're around today. There is an opposite to God's moral image in this world. This week, once again, we are all praying against but nervously anticipating that evil is taking hold in Afghanistan in the persona of the Taliban. And the, the ruthless story of the Taliban in this debacle going on in, in Kabul right now, it's, it's just horrific, right? The story of the Taliban includes subjugation of women and girls, and we're just breathless over what that portends for the years ahead. It includes assassination and execution and beheadings and even stonings. And it predicts frightening prospects for the years ahead. And it, it hurts at our very core. And of course, throughout history, church, and stay with me because this brings it home to us, throughout history, this kind of extremism for hate, it's not limited to Islam, is it? It was there in the Jewish faith, as we'll see 
this morning, in this morning's story. It was certainly found in Hindu extremism. And the Christian church, while we may have turned our back on, on burnings at the stake and torture on the rack, but it still exists. We still see firebombing, abortions in the name of God, abortion clinics, and extreme hate speech directed against the LGBTQ community. And we see violence against perceived political enemies as in the name of God somehow. And all of that still exists in all of our religious communities. But I will say this, atheists too can't point just to religion. They, they too have killed millions in the last century through the likes of Stalin and Mao and Hitler and Pol Pot and others. So all of us share in this history of extremism of hate. But here in Acts, in the Acts of the Apostle, not unlike the Taliban, we, we witness religious hate that is rooted in the God culture of its day. It begins with Stephen. Stephen in Acts chapter 6, and I want to encourage you, please have your Bibles open because I'm going to refer to lots of verses, but we're not going to put them up on the screen. So just at home and here, have your Bibles open to Acts 6 and 7. It begins with Stephen, who is a religious activist in the new Christian expression, just getting started in the new church, and others don't agree with him. So follow along in your Bibles. Stephen, you'll see in, in chapter 6, is history's first social worker. Anybody here a social worker? A couple of you? Stephen is history's first social worker. In, in, chap, in verses 1 through 7, we read, Daniel read this of chapter 6. He is assigned, along with six others, to carry for the widows of the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who had been marginalized by the community, that had been shoved aside and weren't receiving the food that they needed. And I am sure that hatred for Stephen begins because he is such a successful advocate for the poor and such a righteous servant for the underserved. There are those today who do not like that voice in our community who will stand up for those who are marginalized. We, we have voices that hate that going on. So here's the story. Follow along in your Bibles. Stephen is a fierce, fierce activist for Jesus who draws the crowds in verse 8. Verse 9, the opposition arose from members of the synagogue, and they argue with Stephen. Verse 10, they can't answer him. They cannot figure out the new social worker who delivers food to the tables of the poor. And listen, Grace City, you don't have to be a seminary-trained preacher to speak for Jesus. Write that down. If you're wondering, you don't have to be. The Spirit gives his wisdom to all of us. Now watch how ruthless his enemies become. In verse 11, there's a conspiracy as they secret, secretly persuade people to file false complaints against them. Does that sound familiar in our world? Verse 12, they stir up the people with mob appeal tactics. Sound familiar? Verse 13, it's all about false charges and false witnesses. Grace City, please don't expect that extremists for hate will ever play fair. I hope nobody's counting on the Taliban to play fair. It's not part of an extremism for hate. There's no... no reason to expect them to play fair. Nobody plays by the rules when they're extremists for hate. Stephen is hauled into the judicial dock in chapter 7, verse 1. Take a look. I'm going to put some of this up. Uh, he's asked by the high priest, are these charges true? And Stephen answers for the next many verses. And by the time he's finished, Corey, things have only gotten worse because he is fiercely advocating for his people and for God and God and his people and Jesus Christ. So we pick it up at verse 54. Take a look. Do they cross-examine him? Do they refute his message from the scriptures that they're meant to be the experts in? Not at all. They're furious, this text says. They're gnashing their teeth. And by verse 57 and 58, they even cover their ears. 
and they rush at him. I mean, it's ludicrous, right? It's, they, can't, they can't hear, they won't hear, they won't listen. And this is the Sanhedrin. This is the house of bishops. This is the religious leadership acting this way. So they drag him out of the city and they begin to stone him. It's mob violence at its worst. And there's an ugliness. I'll say this and I'll own it. There's an ugliness about religious people when their status and their privilege are being challenged. It's a bigger reality than we're willing to admit. It's a clear and present danger then and now. And church, when we can't avoid the ugly moments in our history of the church, we resort to changing the narrative. We're doing this now with, with recent violence. Change the narrative. It was no big deal. It's a big deal. And this is the thrust of Stephen's, Stephen's position and defense. And listen, Stephen's not particularly gentle in this. His words back to the Sanhedrin are very challenging. He is speaking truth, and they don't want to hear it. He's reminding the religious elite, you always resist God. You always persecute his prophets. You always do this. And he recites the history of how they've done it. This is hard on them. And then he tells them that their evil has recently reared its head once more in the death they delivered. Look at verse 52. The death they delivered to Jesus, the righteous one. He says, in the name of God, you have done away with God's rescuer king and wantonly had him murdered. He is calling out the extremists of hate. And we have reason to fear it then and now. Church, it isn't any wonder that politicians and justice officials and law enforcement warn against extremism and they form policies to prepare against extremism. But I will say this to you, extremism itself, just as a singular word, that's not the problem. Because extremism does have an opposite side in God's economy. When it comes to our imago Dei, our image of God, the moral image of God, we must ask this. What kind of extremists will we be? Extremists for hate or extremists for love? And we step into the moral image of God when we put on the most radical love that reflects Jesus. We're just a reflection. Martin Luther King saw this choice too. Leading the nonviolent protests in the 60s for civil rights, he was labeled an extremist across the board. And at first, he says, he writes that he resented that label. But then in his long letter from Birmingham jail, he wrote this. So just listen to, to Dr. King about extremism. But as I continued to think about being labeled an extremist, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. Really? And he asked this, was not Jesus an extremist in love? He said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. Is that not extreme? Would you agree? Was not Amos an extremist for justice, Dr. King writes? Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Look around the room, swivel your heads. Is not Corey an extremist for love on the streets of Baltimore? Is not Crystal an extremist for the love of the women of this church? Is not Alan an extremist at work when he goes to work? I mean, I could point to anyone. That's your job. Aren't the Boyers extremists here in Federal Hill? For the people of Federal Hill, particularly those who have no home, aren't they extremists for love? Look around the room. So Dr. King continues. So the question is not whether we will be extremists. 
But what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? So church, in the Chronicles of Stephen, in Acts 6 and 7, we see extremists for hate. But we also see Stephen reflecting the moral image of God as an extremist for love. He begins first as a Christ-following social worker. He is loving on the poor. A lot of people don't like that. He continues as a lay preacher, speaking the truth in love. And if you wonder how that goes together, check out some sermons from just this past uh, spring. And in the final chapter of Stephen's story, we cannot miss the echoes of Jesus that are there. If you know the story of Christ, there are so many parallels between Jesus and Stephen's death. We see the kangaroo court, the false charges, the mindless rush to kill. We hear the final cry. Jesus said it this way, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And here in verse 59 from from Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then that great prayer, Father, forgive them as Jesus prayed. And here in verse 60 from Stephen, as they stone him, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Could you pray that prayer as you're being stoned? I fear some of us have lost our sense of wonder at such a prayer. It's so familiar. We preach it every Good Friday. Perhaps we've we've lost our wonder. It's true for me. I mean, I'm I'm much better at praying with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? But sometimes I'm not good at praying with, with Dr. King, not long, with the confidence that in Christ there's hope going forward, active hope going forward. It's a legitimate prayer, but, but, but we must pray with confidence and forgive like Christ forgave. Please don't reduce Stephen's prayer to the bland or the expected. Stephen is an extremist for love. And we too must grow like that, putting on the moral image of God so that we might meet extremism with extremism. Hate with love. So in Afghanistan, of course, pray for the persecuted. But like Stephen, like Jesus, like Corey, like so many of you, also pray for the persecutors. This is God's kingdom. This is something my pastor, Corey Barnes, has taught me. Because if you're praying across the board, even for those who despitefully use you, even for the persecutors, when you're, it's not hard then to see how we might love each other across the lines that divide us here in Baltimore. If you can pray for the Taliban, you can, you can pray for somebody who you consider across the line from you. In our world of hatred and violence and injustice, we need Grace City people and the church in Baltimore at large. We need more extremists who know what it looks like to speak truth and to deliver love to our enemies. Now, during those intimate evenings in Nicaragua, we thrilled to these daily stories. I saw Jesus when... It was a direct way to see the reflection of the Son of God accomplishing His work in in a uh, poorest of the poor developing country. Knowing he is about to die just before the rocks and stones begin to fly, Stephen puts a final stamp on his story in verses 55 and 56. Take a look at it. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and saw Jesus. And he said it this way, Look! The stones are about to fly. And Stephen says, look, imagine it. Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. I see Jesus 
when I'm in the most dire strait. Elsewhere in the New Testament, after Jesus had borne our sin on the cross, risen from the grave, ascended into heaven, it tells us that he sat down at the right hand of God. It's, it's a wonderfully symbolic way of saying, job done, it is finished, nothing more needed, sins are forgiven. But here, G Stephen sees him standing, as one commentator put it, as if he's getting ready to welcome home his very first martyr. Or as many preachers have said it, here we find the Bible's only divine standing ovation for such as Stephen. And as for me, I imagine Stephen saying, I saw Jesus when. I saw Jesus in my biggest trouble as I was about to join him at the right hand of the Father. I saw him when I lifted him high and he increased and I decreased. I saw Jesus. So church, where will you see Jesus this week? Are you willing to be an extremist for love? As the worship team comes up, I want to pray and I want you to join me in prayer. And would you just um, join me in silence for a moment as the worship team begins to play. Join me in silence and, and Ask God to open your eyes to see him as this week goes forward. To see him in the lives of those you might consider an enemy. To see him in, in the daily tasks that he brings you to. To see him in your children. To see him in your elderly parents. I'm one of those, by the way, for my kids. Just take a moment and ask God to open your eyes. Heavenly Father, you created us in your image, spiritual, political, and then in your moral image to live together in love as your own people, in the very same way you love us. Open our eyes today to see each other. Open our, our ears to hear each other. Open our minds to understand each other. And open our hearts to care for one another. As you increased in your servant, Stephen, so increase in us so that we might forgive those who have wronged us and love those who hate us. Unite us in your service, Lord. Keep us in your great mercy until the day when we at last see you in heaven with Christ at your side. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, church, let's, let's stand up and worship together. It's so good to be together. At home, join us in singing. Just sing like nobody's listening, because probably nobody is. But come on, let's sing together, of course.